From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A letter asking Attorney General William Barr to resign now has more than 2,000 signatures. Former Justice Department officials who say his handling of the Roger Stone case is the latest example of political interference. Former U.S. Attorney for Colorado Bob Troyer lent his name. I've never seen somebody undermined by the attorney general himself on a matter like a sentencing calculation. It's way across the line. Then, he was one of the last survivors of the attack on the USS Arizona at Pearl Harbor. And my back was burnt pretty bad. All my hair was gone, burned off. We remember Donald Stratton of Colorado Springs. Plus, Denver-born artist Jordan Castile makes the sale of a lifetime. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. President Trump says he has, quote, total confidence in Attorney General William Barr. But more than 2,000 former Department of Justice officials have signed a letter calling for Barr to resign. One of the signatures belongs to 15-year justice veteran Bob Troyer, former U.S. attorney for Colorado. He was appointed by President Obama. Then President Trump kept him on for a year. Bob, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Ryan. The letter says President Trump and Attorney General Barr have openly and repeatedly flouted a fundamental principle, uh, and that is that there be no political interference in the conduct of a criminal prosecution. It says only the most recent example is that prosecutors were overruled in the sentencing of Trump associate Roger Stone. Why did you sign the letter and why now? I signed the letter because I heard the story in the news. I got the communication from the alumni group. I looked at the letter. And the minute I looked closely at the story, I realized this is a horrible, tough, demoralizing time for people still working at the department, people in my old office. It's just like getting kicked in the junk every day to have your ultimate boss at the department behave like this. And my heart went out to them and I know how tough it is for them to do their jobs with this lack of leadership and that's why I signed. Let's hear from Attorney General Barr himself in that ABC News interview last week. The president has never asked me to do anything in a criminal case. Your reaction? Well, I don't know if the president has asked him or Barr just understands what the president expects without the president having to ask. I think it's probably the latter. Uh, what What is unusual about what happened then? Help us understand why this sticks out for you. Yeah, look, every attorney general has and is supposed to have policies, but those policies are supposed to be the administration's upholding of the law in the way they think makes the country the safest. They can emphasize immigration prosecution. They can de-emphasize criminalization of drug use. They can emphasize white collar. It's not appropriate in our democracy for any attorney general or any president to make it the policy of law enforcement to perpetuate the president's political power. That's this attorney general's policy. It's clear from the re-looking at with special newly assigned bar chosen people of the Flynn case, of Comey, of McCabe, 
There are countless examples. This is just the latest one, and it was the most egregious in my mind because coming in and second-guessing and ripping away from prosecutors who had a jury convict someone of a crime and then submit to the court a sentencing statement that is within the bounds of the law. To rip that away from the line prosecutors is horribly demoralizing. These are the line prosecutors that either withdrew from the case or entirely from justice. Correct. And people do not do that lightly, Ryan, but I've never seen somebody undermined by the Attorney General of the United States himself on a matter like a sentencing calculation. It's it's way across the line. The letter you signed goes on to say that governments that use the enormous power of law enforcement to punish their enemies and reward their allies are not constitutional republics. They are autocracies. Some strong words there. It's fascinating, though, because in one sentence, the letter asks Barr to resign and in the next says, because we have little expectation he will, it falls to justice's career officials to take appropriate action. Like what? Like reporting to the inspector general, reporting to local bar overseers. Um, B-A-R. Yeah. Not B-A-R-R. Exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, there are a variety of ethical things people can be doing. I'm not, you know, I don't think anyone in the letter uh, who signed that letter is contemplating people behave inappropriately, that they leak uh, otherwise privileged information or do anything crazy like that. There are appropriate mechanisms in a democracy for uh, reporting inappropriate autocratic behavior. The attorney general does serve at the discretion of the president. President Trump tweeted that while he hasn't asked Barr to do something, quote, this doesn't mean that I do not have as president the legal right to do so, but I have so far chosen not to. What do you make of this idea of at once the president appointing the attorney general uh, or nominating and the idea of an independent judiciary? Isn't it kind of inherently thorny? It's thorny, but the lines are actually pretty clear when you think it through. Jeff Sessions, for example, whom I served under, one of his policies, very straightforward to me as U.S. attorney and all U.S. attorneys, Let's reduce the number of opioid deaths. Let's use all the criminal investigation and prosecution tools to get the death count down. That's appropriate. That's a political policy. That is his expression that this administration thinks it's important to make America safer to implement that policy. I hear supporters of the president say that what they appreciate about him is that he's different from usual politicians. The idea that he speaks his mind, that his rejection, if you will, of the way things have always been done is what they love about him. Can you suss out for those folks why this to you feels different? It's different because law enforcement and prosecution is enormous power. The power to imprison people, the power even to investigate and charge people is extreme, and it has to be handled with integrity and fairness. If it's not, the democracy's 
done. It's over with. It leads to the destruction of free speech and many, many other rights our democracy takes for granted. Uh, speaking your mind, being different from other politicians, I get all that. I see the appeal of all that. Refreshing in many ways. It's not refreshing when it takes on as a creed the use of enforcement, investigation, and prosecution to perpetuate its own power. The Attorney General, the Justice Department, is an arm of law enforcement. I think we often think of law enforcement as the beat cops. Right. There are no doubt supporters of the president who feel strongly about backing the police, about backing law enforcement. Do you think that this actually serves to undermine law enforcement? That was the second thing that really motivated me to sign the letter. People in law enforcement, the FBI, ATF, DEA, the Marshal Service, prosecutors, and people from the mailroom all the way up to the U.S. attorney himself work day in and day out to earn and maintain the trust they need from communities to enforce laws and to protect those communities. That trust is essential to persuade juries, to get witnesses to cooperate, to get victims to heal. And it's very fragile. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Former U.S. Attorney for Colorado Bob Troyer, he has signed a letter calling on Attorney General William Barr to resign. Troyer most recently led the independent inquiry into sexual abuse by the Catholic Church in Colorado. One of the last remaining survivors of the attack on Pearl Harbor died at home over the weekend in Colorado Springs. Donald Stratton was 97. When he was 19, he was a seaman first class on the USS Arizona, anchored at a naval base the Japanese attacked in December 1941. People were laying on the deck. People were groaning and hollering and screaming. Everybody was trying to get a shot of morphine, and my T-shirt caught on fire, and of course they cut all of our clothes off. And my back was burnt pretty bad. All my hair was gone, burnt off. Part of my ear was gone. Had a lot of scars. Nearly half of the 2,400 Americans killed at Pearl Harbor were Arizona crew members. Stratton sustained burns, as you heard, over two-thirds of his body. Ken Geyer co-wrote his biography called All the Gallant Men. Geyer spoke with Colorado Matters in 2016 about Stratton and the moment of the attack. He had actually just finished breakfast, and he had uh, several oranges in his naval cap that he was taking to a friend who had jaundice in sickbay. And just as soon as he got up on deck, he saw the sailors all pointing to Ford Island. And he heard the drone of planes and the bombs dropping, beginning to drop. And then he saw one of the planes veer away and saw the characteristic uh, meatballs, those round red decals on the wings of the Japanese Zero. And uh, he just went immediately to his battle station, ran up about uh, five flights of metal stairs to get there. It was it was mainly calibrating the guns, uh, the anti-aircraft guns that they had on board, and trying to set the altitude right so that when the uh, anti-aircraft shell blew up, it would blow up at a certain altitude where the planes were flying in the hope that it would the shrapnel from those bullets would hit the cockpit or fuel line or 
some other vital part of the enemy planes. Don Stratton recalled that the Japanese flew so low he could see the pilots smirking and waving. Geyer said it all became very personal for Stratton. You have to take into consideration that he lost so many friends uh, in an instant. And to see your enemy, one, not declare war, but just kind of hitting you blindside. It's like you're just walking and somebody comes up from behind you and this slams into your head and knocks you to the ground. It's that, that type of thing. And it's one thing for them to do that. It's another thing for them to gloat over it. And just as they were dropping their bombs and strafing the ships, uh, had this just wicked grin on their face and waving to them and making all kinds of gestures to them. Several bombs hit the Arizona. The fourth was armor-piercing with a fuse delay. It slammed through the decks of the ship and hit the ammunition storage. It went through the starboard side of the number two turret, exploding at the, at the same time when it exploded. It ignited a million pounds of gunpowder, uh, 180,000 gallons of aviation fuel for the planes that they had on board, the spotting planes. But they also had just filled up the ship in anticipation for a trip to the West Coast. And so they had a a million and a half gallons of fuel on on top of that. And when the bomb exploded, all of that exploded too. And you had this huge, huge fireball and these black plumes of smoke just billowing up and eating up the blue sky. There was no escape there down the hatches or down the ladders and everything because everything was all so hot you couldn't hardly do anything. And one gentleman jumped out and I tried to close the hatch and got burned pretty bad, but just pulled the skin off my arms and threw it down because it was in the way. What happened was there was a, a momentary parting of the, this huge plume of black smoke. And he saw a man in another ship that was moored right next to them in a ship called the Vestal. And the Vestal was a repair ship, and they had docked alongside of the Arizona. And he saw uh, a sailor cutting the lines that held the two ships together because the Vestal was fearful that the fire from the Arizona would destroy them. And so he, he waves, gets this man's attention, and has him throw a heaving line. And so he throws the heaving line over, uh, missed it once, missed it twice. A third time, Don catches it, ties it off, and now they have to see if they can go across. uh, It's about 70 feet across, and it's about 45 feet down. Now, what Down looked like was now the fuel oil was in the water and had ignited. So you have flames not only under the sky platform where they were cooking the metal that they were standing on, but they had flames in between the two ships They were going to try to just forehand, one hand over the other, to get from the Arizona to the Vestal. He's burned over two-thirds of his body, but also all the flesh in their hands was burned off and in their palms. So as they're forehanding themselves across this rope, it it was just bare tissue, you know, excruciatingly painful. But they got all six of them across. It was just a a miracle that, that they did. And a year later, Donald Stratton re-enlisted in the Navy. He served on a destroyer in the Pacific. When I was discharged the first time, I went home. Nobody was around. All the people I graduated with that I ran around with, they were all in the service. And that's probably had a lot to do with me going back. Outside, maybe a little revenge. And this is true of a lot of people who experienced the worst parts of the war. 
uh, they saw so much, and there was such brutality. You have to understand these guys. These guys were so innocent in terms of the ways of the world, and they were so trusting. Uh, you know, they were going on shore leave that weekend to buy a Christmas present for their kid brother or sister. They sent their money home. They wrote to the mothers, <clears throat> and to see them so savagely cut down in the prime of life and all the gifts that they had to offer the world rescinded in that moment. Uh, he was never able to recover from that. You know, there's a part of him, he, he lives, he still has his scars on the outside that you can see and some limitations physically, but you can't see the scars on the inside and the wounds on the inside. And the trauma, the memories uh, have never gone away. And that's part of the price that he pays as a survivor to live with those memories. And it's just really hard to forgive in a situation like that. Ken Geyer is co-author of Donald Stratton's biography, All the Gallant Men. He spoke with Colorado Matters in 2016. You also heard recordings of Stratton provided by the book's publisher. Stratton died Saturday in Colorado Springs at age 97. There are now two living survivors of the USS Arizona crew, which was bombed by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor in 1941. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News. Every day, Colorado Public Radio works to deliver you meaningful news and music, using the power of the human voice in all its forms, so you can build a deeper connection to your community. To do that, CPR relies on your support. Join CPR's membership community for the first time as a monthly donor, and your Evergreen membership will be the gift that keeps on giving, supporting the resource that keeps you listening. It's easy to donate at CPR.org. Denver-born artist Jordan Castile has hit the big time. This month, one of her paintings, a portrait of her mother titled Mom, sold at auction in London for nearly $667,000. That's more than double the expected price. Castile is known for large yet intimate portraits of friends, family, and strangers. She uses vivid colors and paints many of her subjects, who are black, in the places they work. I sat down with Castile last February before her first exhibition at the Denver Art Museum. Jordan, welcome to our show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Why laugh? Or you're in a good mood. I'm always in a good mood. I'm so excited to be here. I wonder if that's partly because, I mean, you have a, a solo show in a museum you used to visit as a kid. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I am literally coming home to... Um, an institution that I used to occupy as a child and never foresaw myself as being any of any kind of magnitude on a wall that somebody would think my name would be worthwhile to put up and that the works that I was making. Why would it not have entered your head, do you think? (laughs) It's so abstract, I think, as a young person and even as an older person to think about how it is that you get your work on the walls of a museum. It, It, a museum in and of itself seems to be a place of kind of culture keeping and a accolade teller and the value giver of what it is that you're looking at. And I never saw 
any or knew anyone who was doing that kind of work that was actively making work and showing in a public capacity that maybe there were creatives around. So it's just so abstract. I never thought it was something that I could do, nor did I know how to do it. Let's talk about some of your images of Denver. Yeah. Does Denver, like your first muse? Oh, absolutely. I think... Denver is my first muse because it is ingrained. I was born at Rose Hospital, that I literally have um, occupied the streets of Denver from the moment that I was born until I was 18 years old. The Denver community has kind of seeped into my being. And so the paintings of people in Denver felt very obvious and so obvious that I didn't do it for a long time. Um, I was painting people in grad school that were my community members there. But once I got to New York, I was thinking a lot about home um, and coming back home and painting the people that I loved here. Yeah, describe a Denver painting for us. Yeah. So, for example, I'm going to get my hair cut by Marcus this afternoon. So the painting of Marcus and Jay's is a pretty special one. He is sitting next to his son who is asleep um, where in his barbershop. So I went to his barbershop. I wanted to do this portrait of him and his son. We couldn't wake up his son to save our lives. We were both like poking and prodding at his son. And eventually I said, you know what, Marcus, just put your arm around him. We're just going to go with it. And I think it's a really tender moment that we ultimately ended up capturing. The sun was setting. You see the kind of light cutting across his face. You see on the background all the pennants of the schools that people bring him to put on the walls of the barbershop. And one of those pennants is of Yale, which I brought back for him. Um, And he has been somebody, Marcus in particular, took me to prom, has been in my life for many, many years. And I gave him a call two days ago when I started to scramble and said, I think I need a haircut. Can you help me out? Just more about your background. Your grandfather was civil rights activist Whitney Moore Young Jr. Uh, He was head of the National Urban League, an advocate for racial integration, particularly in the workplace. He died before you were born, but I wonder how you've absorbed his legacy of social justice as an artist. Yeah, so I think his image and him as my grandfather was really prominent in my upbringing, but not in a in a way that felt as if I needed to carry a torch as his granddaughter. It was more about how do I live um, in the values that he has shared with my mother that I never personally got from him, but has got have gotten through my mother as a result. Your mother, Lauren Castile, who yes. has been described as the Oprah of Denver. Yes, by me, which she might be horrified okay. by. Why do you call her the Oprah of Denver? Um, Because she's fabulous. I mean, she is such a powerhouse in her own right. She has worked in philanthropy my entire life. She used to have her own TV show. We joke that Right now, as I walk down the street with her, you would think, based off this exhibition, that people would maybe be stopping me. But in fact, they're stopping her. And then um, <laughs> then they pass me on as a result. And she says, oh, and by the way, my daughter, she's getting ready for this exhibition. And so the legacy is something that you carry with you. It sounds like you don't feel burdened by it. No, not at all. I think... And I think my parents did a really wonderful job, in particular my mother, in making sure that we understood that 
It is about walking the walk, um, not just talking the talk. So doing the work in my day-to-day life and embodying. And what does um, that look like? For me, that looks like telling the stories and getting people to see people that they might not have seen before, to slowing people down and creating literal space. So my grandfather, as you said, was interested in diversifying the workplace and really bringing inclusion to the workplace. And if you think about who we walk by on the street on a day-to-day basis, we are... I think very frequently walking past people that we could have an opportunity to say hello to and might have actually more similarities and differences that we would perceive on first instinct. So the paintings are my way of slowing people down and making room for others and and living with them as a result. You literally, on the street, stop people and talk to them. Yes. And have the awkward request of, can I paint you? (laughs) Which, you know, in a a particular setting could be quite creepy. Yes, it is. I think in most settings it is. I think about if the tables were turned and somebody did what I did to people, um, whether or not I would say yes. So oftentimes it looks like me walking up to somebody and saying, hi, my name is Jordan. That's like the simple start. Uh Um, And then saying, and I'm a painter and I am working on this project. You have a minute to kind of listen to what it is that I'm working on and seeing if you would be interested in participating. And I You've show done this images. in Harlem. I've done this in Harlem. I Every kind of different community I've occupied. And when people say no, is it just that they're pressed for time? I haven't gotten many no's, oh if I'm goodness. honest. I know. It's crazy. It's baffling to me every time um, that... I can't even recall a moment where somebody has said no. So describe for me one of the Harlem paintings. The one that I love talking about the most was the first that I made or the first person that I photographed when I was a resident at the Studio Museum in Harlem. Because you, that's how you start the process is yeah. photographing? I photographed the subjects and I it was the first time that I made the decision to approach people I didn't know or have a connection to somehow. So I walked out on the street in Harlem and I was walking past Sylvia's restaurant and there, which is a... Kind of an institution of... of Gospel yep. and soul food. Soul food. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was walking by there and there was a young man, young old man, James, was sitting out front selling CDs. The sun was shining so beautifully on him. And I walked past him at first. And then I had this whole internal dialogue where I was like, you just made a huge mistake. You have to go back right now. And I turned around and I said, hi, James, my name is Jordan. And I was wondering if I could take your portrait. I'm trying to get you on the walls of the museum. I explained what Studio Museum was and what my goals were. And when he saw his painting for the first time, it was a pretty remarkable moment because he thought it was going to be a little drawing or something. So he stood in front of his painting and he said, oh, my God, I thought this was going to be a little drawing or something. I have to go get my wife. What was the scale? The scale was probably six foot by five foot at least. So they're big. He had to look up at himself. Uh um, And that experience was clearly a profound one. What is it that you like about portraiture in particular? Like, do you always imagine your paintings will have a person in them? In some capacity, I always imagine that the paintings would represent my day-to-day life and and the things and the people that were around me. So portraiture and painting is just my way of slowing down and getting to know people at my own pace. And I do think in the earliest phases of my painting practice, I was doing self-portraits. When I was in Italy, I was painting the staff and my classmates. So it's always been just about my environment. More that than like a bowl of fruit. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Although bowls of fruit have been painted. I've done that. (laughs) Is it important to make people look good? 
I think that's the bigger question of looking good. How do we define what looking good is? Our perceptions of beauty, our perceptions of safety or comfort or familiarity. What's most important to me is to capture the essence of the people that I'm painting. So my experience of them, um, the gesture of their pinky sticking out or the clothes that they're wearing or the, the environment that they're in, language often appears within the works as a result because people are determining for themselves how they want to look and feel. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Portrait artist and Denver native Jordan Castile recorded around this time last year ahead of her first big show at the Denver Art Museum, which then bought two of her pieces for its permanent collection. This month, Castile's painting titled Mom, which is a portrait of her mother, sold at auction for more than $650,000. And that's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. Thank you.